Hey, how's it going, everybody? We are back at the JU Israel The Teacher's Lounge. Guys, you're going to need to lead me in. And uh, I am here once again. I forgot my name. <laughs> I did it again. Michael Unterberg is here with my co-host, as always, Alan Goldman. How's it going? Awesome. And we are back again with Benji Davis. I'm going to have to say my experience is that, Mike, you're the host. I don't know if Alan's a co-host. I'm not going to lie. Oh, that was harsh. I was thinking more of color commentator. Wow. Now, you will notice uh, some people have commented to me that they notice that voices don't sound equally strong. That is because at the moment we have one microphone, at which people said, well, it sounds weird when somebody fades out and somebody else fades in. I think that's a good thing because then we don't talk over each other. But one day, God willing, we may each have our own microphones and we'll have to learn to not talk at the Donations same time. Donations welcome. <laughs> Yes, that housekeeping aside, let me just say that we are sorry that we are delayed. Usually, we try to get one episode out a week, but we've had other things going on, and so this is there's been a bit of a gap. Uh, We'll try to make as few of those as possible. Uh, Today, we are once again having coffee here at the Bagel Cafe at Emek Refaim, as is our want, and back to our roots, our coffee drinking roots, and. and uh, we had uh, some plans for today, and Benji suggested that we do a particular topic. And so I will let him introduce why he wants this topic and what the topic of today will be. Okay, so as I was, well, I didn't really peruse, someone suggested I check out this op-ed in the New York Times today, written by the international spokesman of the Jewish community in Hebron, a very nice man by the name of Ishai Fleischer, who put out an op-ed saying, why are we talking about the two-state solution anymore? Pretty much there are other alternatives to solve the conflict here in Israel. And so I thought it was fascinating from two lens. A, that a, vo- a strong voice was given in the New York Times on the day Trump is meeting Netanyahu um, to an alternative besides a two-state solution. And that goes into what's going on now is people are questioning whether or not, well, A, Bibi, but of Trump, will even come out in support of a two-state solution today after the meeting with Netanyahu. Uh, but secondly, what really fascinates me is I don't know if we're going to take this conversation that way, but it seems a lot of the voices that you'll hear in a New York Times op-ed pieces that are coming from the pro-Israel side tend to come from one extreme or the other and aren't necessarily reflecting of moderate or mainstream voices. So that's, that's why I wanted to talk about, well, is the two-state solution maybe no longer mainstream? Let's talk about the two-state solution for a second. One reason why it's being called in question is because, remember, you go back to the Republican Can Convention. Can we define it first? Okay, yeah. I'm doing that. Well, if you go back to the Republican Convention, um, they left the two-state solution out of their um, platform for Israel and the Middle East. Uh, and that was, at its time, controversial. Why is that? Because the two-state solution for about 80 years um, now has been the basic um, paradigm for Jews and um, Arabs of Palestine living in this area in two distinct states. That starts in 1937 with the British Peel Commission. Well, hold on. You have the Jews moving here to start the project of building a state in the 19th century. You have Arabs saying we, we are looking towards building a state starting really in the 1920s. So in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, when the, it was looked into, that conflict... Yeah, okay. That that conflict, again, the, in 37, there's the first time is talking about a two-state solution between um, people living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Um, two, two, uh, Arab, um, what's called the Arab Revolt from 1936 to 1939 against the British, British rule and 
and continuing Jewish growth in uh, in the land of Palestine. Ten years later, in the British Mandate of Palestine. In the British Mandate of Palestine. Ten years later, after World War II. Well, hold on. That proposal, by the way, in 1937, that gave about 15 percent of that land to to create a Jewish state, and about 85 percent to create an Arab state. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was also a big chunk for the British. It was a three-state solution. No. Well, no. The, the, the corridor, the Jerusalem, the Jerusalem to corridor, the corridor, between, corridor between Jaffa and Jerusalem right, with but, Jerusalem. But in general, but in general, again, most of these things are always based on demographics, where people are living at the time. The Jews accepted that pr- that suggestion, and the Arabs rejected it. In 1947, there's well, uh, the Jewish leadership accepted it. Okay. Is that the, fair? Yeah. Yeah. 1947, post World War. I was just trying to make it concise. World War II, post World War II, post Holocaust, is the partition plan voted on the UN General Assembly, Resolution 181, which gives uh, Jews about 55% of the land, inclu- which includes a lot of the ne- ne- Negev Desert, and Palestinians 45% of the land. Arabs, they're all Arabs. Palestinians. Right, Palestinians. Jews and Arabs. Jews and Arabs. Yeah. Arab Palestinians. Um, which includes the mountains, uh, what we would call Judea and Samaria today is West Bank, a lot of the north, um, and contiguous land, where the Jews actually don't have contiguous land. Jew- Jew- Jewish land is broken up into three different pieces. Um, well, uh, just physically, they also have three sections. And yeah, but they're not connecting. Those sections are not connecting. But they're across... The Arabs, well, Arabs I'll attach a map, but they're across pinch points to all three, depending on which way you look at yeah, but you have that corridor that's that that separates the, the the Jewish lands. Anyway, whatever that that was rejected, of course, by the not only the Arabs in Palestine but all the neighboring Arab countries. But the Palestinian Jews accepted it in their in their desire to build I, I would say a, a not Jewish only state. The Palestinian Jews, I would say, it was one could say comfortably that the wide consensus well, in the Zionism. Jewish world in the Jewish world was and to the accept Zionist it. World. Jewish world and Zionists. Again, there were those who were against it in the Zionist world, right? The famously Rav Tzvi Yudakuk rips Kriya because we don't have the biblical heartland of Judea and Samaria, which includes Jerusalem and whatnot. Jerusalem was supposed to be an international city, island within the Arab state. What have you, there was a war and fast forward. Well, first the Palestinian Arabs attacked the Palestinian Jews Wait, and started a civil war and eventually... Because there's always a confusing point. Which is who represents the Arabs in the Holy Land, Palestine, land of Israel at the time to say no? As in, who responds to the partition plan? Is it the representatives of the seven Arab states, the Arab League at the time, or is it the local leadership of the Arabs here? Both. As in, right, but Both. Who's the final decider for the Arab no? Um. Well, I don't know that you need an official political representative to turn it down. Once Palestinian Arabs start killing Palestinian Jews in their fight against it, it's dead. It's moot. The whole thing. Answer like whereas the Yeshuv led by David Ben Gurion says, "Okay, we're down." And then it was it Husseini who said no. Was it the head of the Arab League? As in, because once again, the Arab states only invade once the British leave. It's a civil war. So No, no, the official Arab representatives reject it. So the, yes. the Arab states in the UN are the yeah, ones that speak on the, behalf of the, yeah. but the local Arab leaders also yeah, rejected. Yeah, there's documents of the Arab leadership I have actually in my bag in the car, <laughs> a Xerox of one that I did with my TVA class. Oh, cool. Um, Maybe we'll add that to the podcast as well. Yeah, if you send me a link online. I mean, you can find all these things in the Arab-Israeli reader or books like that. That, have, But now it's all online. I'm still thinking on paper. Yeah. But I'm sure it's online. Anyway, no, I yeah. just think it's important to know. I think it's just important 
to know because a lot of times we just say, well, the Arabs, the Jews say yes and the Arabs said no. Well, like, who? Look, there are clearly Arabs in the land of Palestine who side with the Jewish side. I mean, right. we know that there are villages who make pacts with the Zionist, you know, militias and things like that. Well, we know to this day that over 80% of Israeli Arabs would prefer to live under Israeli rule than Arab rule. Right, that's probably mostly economically speaking. It's for a lot of reasons, but it doesn't mean that every single Palestinian didn't agree to a two-state solution. It means that functionally the leadership rejected it, and the militants within the Palestinian world started blowing up uh, Jewish institutions. When the six Arab armies invade, that essentially ends the discussion. Clear. That's a pretty clear vote. Right. Well, but also, no, but, it, but, it, but it means there's not, there's not going to be a Palestinian Arab state. The Jews well, are going to have their state of Israel. The, but what the invasion on May 15, 1948, is, the, is when the Palestinian Arabs commemorate the Nakba, and they say the Nakba is the establishment of the state of Israel. Right. I argue, actually, the actual Nakba, the <coughs> catastrophe, is the invasion of the former British Mandate or the land of Israel by those seven Arab states because once they invade any territory that they gobble up, they had no intention of giving it to the local Arabs for their own local, individual, sovereign state. They rather wanted to conquer it and occupy it and take it over for themselves. And we see that with Jordan and the West Bank and Egypt and Gaza. So really, the Nakba and the catastrophe for the local Arabs is the fact that the Arab states invade for their own benefit, not the benefit of the local population. Well, you could also push it back further and say the real Nakba is when they blew up the Jewish agency building in Jerusalem, thus ending the possibility of Jews and Arabs coexisting as neighbors, right? I mean, the, the, their disastrous decisions led them one, to... One disastrous decision or the other, or to exaggerate you know, actions that Jews committed against innocent um, Arabs as well. I mean, there are a lot of different reasons, but I think the, the two-state solution... You know, on May 15, 1948, was essentially dead when the Arab states invade because they had no intention of facilitating the establishment of a nation state for the local Arabs here. If anything, it was they wanted it all for themselves. Right. Well, with the explicit purpose of making sure there wasn't a Jewish state, that was right. their primary yeah, was goal. Make sure there's no Jewish state, but not that there's an, an Arab state in replace of it. It's just that it is controlled by the Arab states. No, Jordan takes over Judea and right. Samaria. Egypt takes over Gaza. That's that's the end of that. For really. I mean, over 40 years, over 40-something years of that conversation essentially leaving. That is not the major conversation oh, of the okay. Arab-Israeli conflict for, for decades. Well, that's why it was called an Arab-Israeli conflict. Now, now today, you almost never hear that. It's always the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But it really is. It's been an Arab... It really is an Arab-Jewish conflict. I love Mati Friedman's real thoughts on this, but it's essentially it's a, two peoples, the Arabs and the Jews, have been fighting over the same territory and have had different ideas of how to either keep it for themselves or share it. Um, but or a century. So what happens? How does it come? A, or have a one state with the other group being autonomous or right. minorities? Well, in we'll that get state. to that after. But how does it? If the issue is shelved in 1947. How does it become again an issue in 1990? In the 1990s, why does the issue yeah. of the two-state solution return? In the, so as, uh, in 1967, after Israel um, conquered the territories of the West Bank and Gaza Strip and the Golan Heights, um, incorporated the, the largest group of Palestinian Arabs into, uh, under Israeli control came in the West Bank. Um, and in the late 80s, there was a popular uprising called the First Intifada, which caused a lot of tension and problems for Israel of how to control a group that was not given citizenship when Israel took over that area in 1967. Um, and that eventually leads to um, 
again, with also other geopolitical things happening in the world, like the fall of the former Soviet Union and whatnot, to a clandestine um, peace process discussion between Israel and the Palestinians, represented by the PLO in Tunis, which then um, breaks out into the open and to what we know today as the Oslo process. And the Oslo process basically um, had three fundamental ideas to it that everything now will be negotiated out, there will be no more violence, and no unilateral moves. And, and it created in that an autonomous Palestinian areas within the West Bank um, as a first step to solving you know, a, final salute, a final stage of, uh, of solving the problem. Why was Israel interested in the Oslo process? Is it from a geopolitical uh, desire? Is it a moral justification as in why do we want it? Obviously, anything, it's, there's a number of different things, but I think the overriding issue was that it just became intolerable What's it? for the, the it became intolerable for, for Israel to be controlling um, a few million Arabs uh, that, that, that were, right, that did not have citizenship um, in the, against their will, against, right? Against their will, and how to incorporate that, and mo- many of them were working in Israel. But what does that mean? And and what does freedom of movement mean? Again, it was pre times when there weren't there weren't walls, there weren't fences, there weren't even uh, you know um, security barriers to go through, um, and for Jews to go to areas where Jews were living would go through there also freely. So, Remember what was the way to mean? get from Efrat to Jerusalem used to be Beit Lechem. Correct. So. Yeah. So then the Oslo process started moving towards the thing. The, the I would also add for the those principles of uh, negotiation, negotiation and, and no unilateral moves and no violence, that's, that, those are the principles. I would argue that there was a method agreed upon also, which was let's start with the easy areas like Jericho and Ramallah and let's, let's, start, and creating, and, 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 and let's start creating autonomous regions. And then as we go forward, we'll go to the more difficult Right. Leading to within a decade, the final status, di- the mo- the most difficult issues that right. were resolved by the end of the decade. Correct. It wasn't just the, right. It's exactly that easy issues and easy areas, and the, and the easy areas were basically the main urban centers of the Palestinians. They would control themselves, and we still have that today. So there was that that was accomplished. Where you have forty percent of the West Bank, which are the major urban areas, where most of the West Bank um, Palestinians live under Palestinian control autonomous control. Again, it's not full control because Israel uh, controls the areas around and all kinds of stuff. It's more complicated than that. But that, that's the goal. That's the idea. So, wait, so it's a, the, the area ABC situation in the West Bank essentially was a temporary setup that interim. was supposed to last. I would call it temporary. We call it interim. Why? What's the difference? Because uh, cause inter- interim can be long-lasting. Or in, no, because interim, uh, interim, I think, indicates a process where temporary indicates uh, it end, it what? Tomorrow. <laughs> Temporary is like, okay, well, but interim was like exactly well, what we're saying. It's to create a progression that will right. deal with the easy system, resolve that, and then as we get to each harder, we'll have a, a better relationship that will be functioning together, so we'll be able to handle those difficult things as we go on. So area A is handed over. Area B is also created, and that leaves area C and final resolution. Right. And, and area, area B, it, what's the difference between those three legally, let's say, very quickly. Area A is under Palestinian civil and security control. Area B is under Palestinian civil control, Israeli security control. Area C is under Israeli security control and civil control. 
Um, so you have those three distinctive areas in the West Bank. Again, 60% of it is uh, area uh, is under Israeli control. 40% of it is under Palestinian Authority control. Um, so what happened? What happened to the final status? And <coughs> this was supposed to resolve the, the idea of Oslo is it would resolve in a Palestinian state to live alongside an Israeli Jewish state. So final status blew up basically literally in 2000 with the second intifada. Um, and I would say comes to a final close, closing of the Oslo process with the unilateral withdrawal of Gaza, of, the, of Israel. Um, so from 2000 to 2005, you see the basic disintegration of Oslo, of the Oslo process. I think we need to backtrack a little bit. Like, Second Intifada starts in September 2000, yeah. but what happens in the summer of that same year? As in, what, wasn't there some sort of offer that Israel gives which essentially says, okay, this interim status in the West Bank, we are ready to end it and withdraw most of our people and our troops out of the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem and say, okay, the conflict is over, let's implement this two-state solution, two states for two peoples. Wasn't that out on the table? Yeah, yeah it never happened. No, I'm just kidding. We're in the <laughs> no, the way I understand it was, no, the prime minister at the time, Ehud Barak, decides, like, I think. a map on the table. Like, this is what Palestine would look like side by side with Israel. 92% of the West Bank was With swapped land to make up for the difference. So you except, end up with 96, 97% of the West Bank. again, Israel, Israeli control of the Jordan Valley and the borders, basically. Wasn't Remember there even a proposed solution for the refugees? for the Palestinian refugees? It was not right of return. It was compensation. But you'll have to live in the West Bank and Gaza. I believe it was 100,000 symbolic, which is the number of original refugees that were still alive from 46 to 48, and then compensation for 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 the offspring of the others. So the Israeli prime minister essentially puts out a proposition to end the conflict with two states for two peoples. Which the American president and his team say was the maximal offer any Israeli government could make and was absolutely satisfactory to create a Palestinian state. But clearly the Palestinians didn't think so. I'm just put, you know, push back a little bit. Right. Palestinians did not think that this was a, you know, uh, uh, a valid offer. Yasser Arafat decided this was not, but he didn't say no and here's my counter offer. He didn't say, "Well, we're so close, guys. Let's just get it. Let's just get there." He just walked away, and the second intifada starts, and the negotiations are still going on while the second so then, intifada is going. Right. Yes. But then, why? Alan said, "Okay, but in 2005, that kind of ends, right? This the Oslo process I'm with the withdrawal, unilateral withdrawal from Gaza." My question all is, those right, right. But my question is, and. Why does Israel leave Gaza in 2005 at the end of the Second Intifada when over a thousand of its people have been killed? Isn't why is it a good idea to leave the territory, um, either from a security perspective or from a philosophical perspective, which is we can't control over these territories anymore. If we don't have someone to sign a peace deal with, then we'll just do it on our own and divorce ourselves from them. Well, again, the Sharon argument, the Sharon administration at the time argues that it's the same problem as before, demographically. We shouldn't be ruling them against their will. That's a, pro- that's a flaw in democracy. It's the same reason we got into Oslo. So uh, obviously we can't sign a peace treaty. There's no one to sign a peace treaty with. But we still don't want to rule people against their will. So we'll just leave and they can do with it what they want. And that protects a, a Jewish majority in Israel. What do you say to the Peter Beinarts of the world that say Sharon leaves Gaza to actually divide the Palestinians and make them weaker and to strengthen Israel's hold on the West Bank? Yeah, I'm not a big conspiracy theory fan, and whatever his intentions are, it doesn't matter. That's so, so I will only count, I will only counter that. that happens. I will only counter that with the fact that we also withdrew from four right. yeshuvim, four settlements in the West Bank itself, in Samaria, and most 
most historians or whatever, and maybe not historians, but uh, commentators, political commentators, will say that it seems clear that if Sharon had continued on, his his idea was to do a unilateral withdrawal in the West Bank also. Um, Stated. Uh, no, that was his... Proof, yeah. I think a big proof of it is the fact that Kadima wins the election in March 2006 with a technocrat at the head, Ehud Omer, and the only reason they win is because they were carrying on... There were there were political posters out, like Shel Sharon. Like, they were going in the way of Sharon, which was unilateral withdrawal, and really that concept of unilateral withdrawal is destroyed with the Second Lebanon War um, that summer. Um, so I kind of well, I think well, also, also the, the, the withdrawal, also the Hamas takeover of Gaza puts, right, a, puts a big that kind big of that hammers it, into it. Right, and so does the it. violence at Amona when he tries to dismantle right. Amona no, the first I mean, time. It, so yeah. it's, it's a whole or series it's a of a year-long process where Second Lebanon War, we leave a territory and then we get thousands of rockets, and then that kind of replicates itself in Gaza, which has already been happening at that point for six years. Um, but what you see, we're potentially maybe at this the end of a third period post Oslo, where you have essentially the negotiations over a two-state solution, which began in the you know the early to mid '90s and ended in 2000. And then you have the unilateral phase with the, the mid 2000s, and now we have the 2009 is the BB era, which the big question mark of the two-state solution, where it comes about, and there is a strong voice now in Israeli society that we're post two-state solution, we're post unilateral withdrawal. So there has to be other solutions out there, and maybe that's the context yeah. of this issue. Well, I would just right. add that before that technocrat went to jail, he did offer in 2008, right, right, right. he had Arafat, it was, it was, right, it was Omer, right. was dealing with Abbas because uh, Arafat Abbas. had died. What did I say? No, Arafat had died, so oh, Abbas, Abbas. Abbas is now in charge, and Omer offered really a, a more than Barack offered, a more, certainly terms right. in terms of Jerusalem and things like that. What the Clinton administration said was the maximum Israeli offer, Omer went more. beyond it. He, he even offered up sovereignty of the old city. That's my, in terms of Zionism being willing to compromise over our land, what we say is all ours, is that if the Israeli prime minister is willing to offer up sovereignty in the old city and there would be some sort of international administration there, does that not show that Zionism's narrative is compromise if in order to ensure our essential existence here as a Jewish well, That's That's a very different conversation about Jerusalem and Zionism, but one thing for sure that's well, definitely the nail. But definitely the nail in the coffin of Oslo is Eudo Omer offers Abbas, and Abbas walks away without even really responding. Yeah, but Omer, <coughs> to the defense of the detractors against Omer, I mean, Omer never actually showed a map. <coughs> but a, there is no, an no, Omer there's map. map. No, there's we, absolutely we, a map. No, he no. did the map, and he showed it. Omer showed it with miles, in, square right, right. miles no, no, of land exchanges, Barack and Abbas actually. said to the Israeli team, I didn't come here for a math lesson, and walked out. Barack right. never had a map. Taba had a map in yeah. the Barack process at Camp David. Right. There wasn't Camp a map David at Camp oh, David. Camp David doesn't show a map? No. But the map is drawn at Taba afterwards, in so it's part of the Camp David process. In November, Omer was actually clearer. But now we're getting a little into the weeds. No, but you have how we know the map is Abbas draws it on a PLO map, a piece of stationery after Omer shows it to him, but won't give him a copy unless he gives a map in return or the copy of what they want. Okay. Anyway, I... No, no, we know what it would look like, and we show it. I think it's fair to say that the Israelis have made what the Western world considers to be the maximal offer, a fair offer, a reasonable, and a functional offer. Everybody has to compromise. When Obama spoke at Cairo in 2009, he was essentially talking with the parameters of that offer. When 
Kerry spoke, whoever, whoever speaks about it essentially accepts the parameters of those deals right. as reasonable, although the Palestinians so continue to reject keep, it. Why does Israel keep being criticized for the death of the two-state solution, not the other way around? It seems that, and we're still convinced, and Israeli society is still convinced that we can't have a two, we support this philosophical idea of two states for two peoples. So why is it us that is leading to the death of the two-state well, solution and not those I, that refuse to accept it? Well, we do, we do have to recognize that between 1993 and 2016, uh, you know, um, sorry, settlements have grown by three times. Not the settlements, the population in the settlements. The population and settlements have grown by three times the amount. That, you know, four hundred. Right, but that's why mostly. Why don't we? Ha- we can have a right to communities in Judea and Samaria, or what those co- or the West Bank, and at the same time still support a two-state solution. For us, they don't contradict the others, and we can build but an Efrat and at, offer up the West Bank as a two-state I'm just solution. saying, when the world looks at it from out, they're not looking at the same way as you. When they say, oh, you're continuing to move people in, they're saying that is... That's ignorance, because those, those population booms are in areas that, on the Omer map or the Barak map, are going to end up in Israel anyway. And that's and that's and that uh, look and that's the essential for, well, that that is one of the essential um, parameters is that clearly the Palestinians when they're talking about minimally minimally they're talking about the green line they're not talking about we talk about well we offer ninety two percent of the green line ninety percent ninety six percent and the Omar thing they're talking their 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 starting point is the green line. Are you talking about the negotiators who are sitting in the room with the Israelis? Or are you talking about the leadership I'm, back I'm home the leadership, and the I'm, people? I'm saying clearly they've shown that they're not willing to take anything less than the full green line. Now, we don't even know if they would take the full green line, but at least that. I, I don't think that's the issue. The issue, as they, as they say, are three things. It's we need total control of Jerusalem. We can't have Israeli well, troops along the Jordan River Jerusalem Valley. Them, and, 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 right, and refugees have to live in Israel, not in the West Bank and Gaza. So we need 5 million Palestinians to move into Israel. So essentially their demand is we'll accept the two-state solution if it helps undermine the existence of the state of Israel, which Western powers on the outside agree is not a valid negotiation. And so Benji's friends, question stands. And for my friends, we're at a stalemate. No, no, but, but let's, before we get to the stalemate, let's get to Benji's question, which is if it's clearly the Israelis willing to work within the internationally set parameters for a two-state solution, and the Palestinians are rejecting those parameters, why does Israel continue to be hammered as the obstacle to the two-state solution and not the Palestinians? Because the West wants to believe that there is a solution, and those that are in power have the ability to make that solution happen. And from their mind, that's Israel. It's a civil rights issue, and we have the right to to give the civil rights over to the people that essentially don't have it. So if you pressure the big guy, then the little guy will get the things that he rightfully deserves. I think it's, by the way, I think it's the streetlight effect also. You know the old joke? I hate that joke. Okay. Never works. (laughs) I mean, never works. It's not a funny joke. It's an illustrative joke. It's not funny at all. You don't think it's relevant? Guys walking around and guys walking around looking under a streetlight. That's not the point. The guys, guys walking around under a streetlight, looking around. A cop comes by. He says, "Can I help you?" The guy says, "I lost my car keys. Can you help me find them?" The two of them walk around under the streetlight in circles. Finally, the cop says, "I really don't think it's here. How did you drop them?" The guy says, "Well, I was a couple blocks away near my car, and I dropped them." The cop says, "Well, if it was a couple blocks away that you dropped your keys, why are we looking here?" The guy says, "Because there's light here." Yeah. Now, I think in the West, it's very easy to talk and yell to the Israelis because they're running a Western-style country. You have journalists here. You have people to argue with here. You have 
Israelis who will support criticism of their government here. Right. Pressure is somewhat meaningful here. Who are you going to talk to in the Palestinian world? And you have a war. And you have a convenient war to blame it on. And Israel's never done any as just leaving it under military uh, control, which is problematic. Well, but what are you asking Israel to do to change no, the... I'm just saying that that's it's why it's, it's easy. It's much easier story to tell that. Do you think if Israel just... That, to me, I call that the street light effect. You're looking where the light is. That's the easy place to look instead of the place where the actual problem is, which is the Palestinians reject the idea of a Jewish state. So, but I don't know if it's effective for... Uh, like, okay, the strategy could be, okay, fine, no more settlements. We'll say no more settlements. <laughs> But how is that good in terms of ending the conflict? Because if we just say no more settlements without getting anything in return for the Palestinians, then, you know, what do we have left to go through the negotiating table? Besides the fact that we believe that we actually have a right to build well, communities. Well, forget there. negotiation. Let's say 300,000 Jews move out of the West Bank tomorrow. Do you think that will resolve the conflict? No. And it's going to make it worse for the Palestinians. They're not going to have more human rights. They're going to have less human rights because Hamas is going to take over. If Israel, If the Israeli army leaves the West Bank tomorrow, what's going to happen in the West Bank? I think what a Palestinian civil war. That's status quo for the Palestinians. And it's not good for you, Mr. Efrat. <laughs> if I have to move, I'll move. But it, but it, but it should be something. It's, it should be to something that's better than the status quo. Whatever we do next should be improve over the status quo. So I think, so I think it's part of. I think that's part of the stalemate and frustration, which um, is sort of characterizing Israeli apathy towards this. And therefore, you have a resurgence of the right um, who's starting to push an agenda, which is get rid of the two-state solution. Is it a resurgence, or rather they're just being louder? Because, once again, you said the apathy of the most Israeli population is they don't really want to put up a fight for one thing or the other anymore. So the people that actually care have a louder voice, but their numbers aren't any stronger. I think apathy is harsh. I think Israelis are convinced by the Second Intifada that the Oslo process wasn't going to work. We don't have a partner to deal with. And so status quo becomes the the, the best of the terrible options. If the options are annexation, unilateral withdrawal, or status quo... It's the least of the be- it's the least bad of three bad options, I, I and I think that's intelligent. I don't think that's apathetic. Well, I think that's. Think otherwise. I mean, I would say status quo over those other two options. I, I have a problem with status quo because I have a problem that we have, <laughs> even if you take smaller demographics, a couple million uh, people that we are controlling that don't have citizenship in any country, and I, I don't know how to solve that. I'm not sure. Everybody has a problem with the exactly. status quo because it's terrible. Exactly. What option do you have for Israel to do that's better? Is it I on don't our know. Shoulders to solve this? Only that's the problem. Well, but I that's my issue. So. The issue is the Palestinians should either accept the two-state solution framework, really, and accept international consensus that the Israeli offer was reasonable, or be prepared to suffer international sanction for perpetuating the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Yeah, no one is that. No one's there. No one's there, and Not that to me close. is the problem. But maybe the Trump administration, and like we don't really know where they're at, but it seems to me that they might actually be putting the, the you know, the ball, the ball back in the Palestinians' court. Well, the rumors coming out about the Trump administration plan, and which is similar to the Netanyahu plan somewhat, is that because the Sunni Arab world and their fear of Iran, because they've lost interest in the Palestinian problem, and how much interest they had, I don't ever know. But that's certainly not high on their agenda. And so their interest now, their agenda um, for, for it, Arab so security in the region. for them. That's how much they're interested in it. Yeah. And right now, working with Israel may be more useful to them. Uh, right. 
no, but in they, terms they, of economically, but also you know, security. Yeah, but, but, but publicly wise, they, they are limited how much they can work with Israel until without some kind of solution for this Palestinian problem, which is exactly what Netanyahu is trying to play on. Well, the rumors are that the strategic shift in thinking should be flip it, flip it. Tell the Arabs you want to work with Israel. We know you do. Push the Palestinians to accept the framework so that we can all come out of the closet and accept the Jewish state functionally. That's the lever. So that the two-state solution, rather than being abandoned, is now now we have a we have a pressure point to put on the Palestinians from the Arab world if we can flip them on the Palestinians. But now um, we, we we do have to acknowledge, and this is one thing I think that we tend to not acknowledge, especially those in the, uh, in, in Israel, especially on the right, that when we talk about the two-state solution, we're talking about a limited state. We're not taking full, certainly not in the short term, and maybe not ever, about a full right to the state, controls of all borders, control of airspace and security. So uh, that that I, we have to acknowledge that. That's not a simple thing to say to Palestinians, right? That, that's one reason why I think Netanyahu is... It doesn't sound so fair to me. You know, states in the United States have limited control over their airspace and stuff because to be part of a federation of states, oh, yeah, you have to talk, agree... We're not talking about federation. We're not maybe so... But you're suggesting a new thing, which wasn't... Uh, nobody's no, I'm not. The two-state solution could work that way also. That's you're suggesting a federation. Yeah, there are so many ways to skin the cat if you I want it to great. work. I think that's I But think the problem is the Palestinians don't want it to work. Sixty Over 60% of Palestinians today say that if there was a two-state solution, it would just be a staging ground to the eventual one-state one solution of an state, Arab state from the river solution. to the sea. Two-state solution. That, that, the, ultimately, the problem lies in the Palestinian people's rejection of it. And the Tanial is hoping with the Trump administration that enough pressure will come from the Sunni Arab world that will get the Palestinians in enough to, to back to the negotiating table and take some kind of limited. You think that's offer. what Netanyahu wants? I think so. I don't. I don't think Wait, Netanyahu wants a two-state solution at Wait, all. What is I didn't say two-state. Some kind of limited, you know, Palestinian uh, autonomy, um, so that we could call a state, but is really. I mean, that's you know, a great next podcast. What does Bibi really want? Does he want cigars more than he wants an end of the conflict? I think, honestly, I think he wants to hang on to the status quo until there's some collapse of Palestinian identity so that he can move on without it and just ignore the whole thing. Look, I think that's a fair bet. I mean, we know that Netanyahu generally is a status quo guy. Even we see that's the big fight he has with, like, Bennett over Gaza, right? He prefers the status quo just like the military does more than anything. Whoever's in power usually prefers the status quo. Uh, well, Bennett, uh, Bennett's somewhat in power, but he, you know, whatever. I mean, I mean he's, he's definitely in, in power now for the last yeah. couple of weeks. We'll see how much this lasts. Well, he's but, in uh, power with a big mouth. That's what he was. Sorry. Sorry. He's, <laughs> he's pushed, he pushed that regulation bill through, and that was all him. Yeah. Well, it wasn't all him. It's also, it would it have worked. The Likud right also needs to do it to yeah. me. Look, Netanyahu's in trouble. Obama was great for him oh, to be right. able to tell his right wing base. I can't do what you want me to do because I have to work with the, the Obama administration. Now with the Trump administration, he's lost that fig leaf. And, and, and he's actually, I think he's, he's more dangerous because we don't really see any plans without the Trump. With Obama, you knew the plan at least. Even if you didn't like the plan, you knew the plan. With Trump, you can, there's no plan yet. Maybe there will be, I don't know. But there's no plan yet. And when you don't have a plan, that is, that is I think, very, very tenuous at best. You know, it's very scary. So, so everyone is pessimistic about a two-state solution. Absolutely. 
and I think reasonably so. I would argue, by the way. I, I like your federation plan, personally. But As an alternative? Yes. Look, let's be honest. Any plan that would require the state of Israel to move, let's say Israel does keep the clusters as on the proposed maps. So let's say two to 300,000 of Jews in the West Bank stay in their homes. You still got to move 100 to 200,000 Jews out of their homes. We can barely move 50. We can barely move 50 without the country falling apart. So no prime minister of Israel wants to sign that deal. Mahmoud Abbas, on the other hand, does not want to sign that deal because if the Israeli army leaves the West Bank, he's got a Palestinian civil war that he very probably and his family will not survive. So it is in neither party's interest to have the Israeli army removed from the West Bank. So you're Look, saying both guys just want the status quo? In terms of realpolitik, sure. I think it's in their interest no, to keep well, the status it, quo. It's obviously they want the status quo. That's why the security forces work so closely together. Right. <laughs> the Palestinian security forces and the Israeli security forces are, are working so closely together. That's why the violence has been fairly limited here and, and, and with all this frustration of, of status quo stalemate. Um, so, you know, uh, but status quo is status quo. It never lasts. <laughs> so in a way, That's, I don't know why this popped into my head, but like Abbas and his team coming to Paris' funeral, in a way it was kind of them recognizing like the status quo is good for us. Well, they're cooperating. And this is why no, extremists in the Palestinian world are so frustrated with them. They're collaborating with the enemy. Right. Yeah, they're collaborating because they're, they've found a way. What the status quo has done is it's found a way for everybody to kind of go along by get, getting along. But by the way, this is the same thing with Hamas. Hamas is a status quo that we every two, three years we break up into this big fight and it and explodes. But more or less, it's the status quo. And then we have quiet for a couple years and everybody's with their status quo. And it also frustrates the Palestinians there because they've booked two corrupt different governments. Not to talk about the corruption in ours, but that's a different kind of, that's right. Um, it does not compare. It's, it's more subtle. It's more subtle. It's a, demo, it's a democratic corruption as well, opposed to. It doesn't trickle to, down to your daily right? life. As no, what it you're is. not stealing money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, it's not a kleptocracy. Correct, correct. But but that but you do have the frustration on our side too. But the, the frustration there is is much is much greater with the status quo. But on the other hand, most people are concerned with living their lives and and making you know getting getting your kids a good education and and, and fed and clothed. Um, we're go we're getting along. We're functioning. And any change that status quo is terrifying. Will the peace deal ex make an explosion of violence that disrupts all our lives so that we don't feel safe sending our children to school or to go shopping at a supermarket? Could. So there isn't a lot of energy on either side to change the status quo right now. As bad as it is, philosophically, politically, as unsustainable as it is, in terms of day-to-day -day life, we're much calmer knowing what's tomorrow. Right. So, what, so what were the alternatives that you found interesting in the article? The alternative suggestions, the alternative models? Interesting? I mean, some of them were offensive. Um, okay, so... With the article we'll right, about. so the article we talked about in the beginning, right, the spokesperson of the Jewish community of Hebron essentially puts Yishai out... Yishai Fleischer. puts out a few options. Um, okay, well, what do we do if the two-state solution doesn't work? So one, he said, well, Jordan is Palestine. Why? Well, actually, the majority of citizens in Jordan uh, are actually Palestinians. They're rooted, and they migrated from the land which they call Palestine into Jordan. So why can't Jordan be Palestine? So then you could have the Palestinians living in the West Bank, which would be part of Israel, but they can actually be citizens of Jordan, so some sort of a federation. Um, he also puts out Naftali... No, that wasn't a federation. He, that was, he wasn't calling it a federation. That, that was expats 
living in Israel, but they get to vote and stuff like that in Jordan. That's not a federation. You're right. <laughs> I was yeah. I was um, making nice. Yes, you were making very nice because all these options are basically... No, they're not very nice. The second one is the Naftali Bennett's approach, which is they get self-autonomy in the 40% of the West Bank, and uh, Israel would annex 60% uh, in Area C. In separate dis- city-states. Yeah, but actually I found the, fo- the most fascinating one was he quotes uh, Professor Kadar from Bar-Ilan, a very famous Arabist, uh, which says with the Palestinians in in Israel um, from right-wing circles, which says that the Palestinians are essentially from a bunch of city states, and they're like, they're very clannish, and so they're essentially seven clans in the West Bank, and they can all have their own separate clan autonomous areas, and then Gaza is another clan. Um, And then the last, the other two, he says, well, the demographics are actually not right. And he quotes Caroline Glick's book, which says, well, the Jews are actually 60% of all the people from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, excluding Gaza, and we'll be 70% by 2059. And so, therefore, we could just give everyone citizenship and forget about the fact that, well, maybe they don't want to be citizens in Israel. Uh, that was my commentary. And then or the last... The fact that even a 60-40 split is a, I mean, is a major a, minority. It's not actually, like, I was talking know, about this it with... It sounds um, crazy. I don't understand that. No, I never this is, understood that. This is that. what um, I, a friend of mine who actually pointed the article out to me said, even if it's 60-40, how can you rely on the Haredim? Why wouldn't they side with the Arabs if they give them better benefits? They're not Zionists. They're not committed to well, Israel as a Jewish many, state. What happens to the oh, Jewish character of the state if it's almost split down the middle, a population of Jews? Why would 40% of this... It's, right. it's, it's Even 70-30 is I mean, huge. We're only, I mean, we see now we're at 80-20 or something, 75-25, and the 30th, third largest party in the Knesset is the Arab parties when they decided to, to unite. We're just, one could say that the own fact that they're united, but they still play with really being a part of Israeli legislature or not because they refuse to join a government. If they agreed to join a government, it would it could right. throw the or whole change. how about change, it? You know? Even the city of so, Jerusalem, 38% of the city of Jerusalem are Arabs yeah. with the right to vote in the municipality, and they I choose not to. If yeah. they chose to vote, you could have an Arab mayor of Jerusalem tomorrow. Which I just don't understand, it's, quite honestly. But again, but it's a it's a, it's a different consciousness than I think right. I can grasp. But let me the last the last solution just to put it out there. He quotes Moshe Faglin's plan, which says, "Well, eight hundred thousand Jews from Arab countries were essentially forced to leave and came to Israel, so you would have then population exchange, where then the same amount of Arabs would then be." Voluntarily migrate from their homes in the land of Israel to the Arab world, and that's called transfer. Yeah, which is forbidden by the Geneva Convention Charter Four, which we say we never did. Well, but here's the missing piece for all of those suggestions: what do the Palestinians think? You have millions of Palestinians, and I think it's relevant. Do they want citizenship? Is that good? Do they see themselves not as a Palestinian nation, but as seven separate clan tribes and be happy living in separate? Which, which, by the way, I don't. I also don't understand that claim because we know there are about a million of those are Palestinian refugees from forty-eight war in the West Bank. So, right. where they do they play into that? Which Jaffa, clans do they play right, in there? Originally from Jaffa, and now they're living in Bethlehem. It like, doesn't really work. Yeah, like the Haitian. Why do they? Why are they part of the clan of Bethlehem? I don't know. I don't get it. All. I, I think, think the point is, which Mike, you said it excellently, which is, well, what about the Palestinians? Do they want to be citizens in the state of Israel, and do they want to leave their homes? Like, probably not. And, like, and this goes back to Matthew Friedman's article. I, I mean, I know we go back to that a lot, but I think it was really a monumental article where he says the West ignores the Palestinians. They're right. not part, they don't have a voice. And the, 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 this is exactly what Yishai Fleischer thing. He's ignoring the Palestinians, saying, we're just going to make, and that's what a unilateral move does. It ignores the other side. Bring a Palestinian into the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. 
By the way, I don't say names. I've tried, but it hasn't worked out. Yeah. Yeah. But no, but this is exactly. But this is exactly the issue. If they're not going to take yes for an answer, if any option sounds bad to them, they're only. As a consensus issue in the Palestinian world, the only issue is not to have a state of Israel. Then you can't move forward with any of these plans. With any plan, you're stuck in a status quo. And as Khaled Abutoma, the, journal, the, the Israeli Arab journalist, always says, you people in the West think that there's always a solution to every problem. We here in the Middle East know that you can live with a problem for centuries without a solution. And he argues the status quo is a lot better than the alternative, so let's just settle into a comfy status quo. And one can argue that that goes against essential Jewish consciousness, right? Our whole concept of tikkun olam, of fixing the world. Right. Like, we have this whole paradigm that that's what we're supposed to be doing, is fixing the world and making the world a better place. So how can we just sit around and not fix it? It's, it's a frustrating it's feeling. It is. And listen, it's a Zion, the Zion, Zionism is based on the principle that every people has the right to rule themselves. Right. We don't want to live under anyone else's control. And it's a redemptive movement. Like, right. Zionism is all about tikkun. So the Declaration of Independence talks about living by ethical principles, and a, it's a it's a it's a naughty problem. It's a steer. It's a steer for us. It's a conflict for us in our own ideology. It is, and I argue, and and I'll, I'll put a link also to uh, to our blog. I argue that people have to go through the five stages of grief yes. when dealing with this conflict till you get to the acceptance of we are stuck in a status quo, and 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 any other talk to me is the talk of venting and wish fulfillment, and it's not really practical. Unless you're talking about changing Palestinian opinion, I don't think anything else is practical. Uh, that's a, uh, you know, it's certainly a little bit of a downer to, to, to end on, but I think that, that, I think that there are those who are hoping that such a, uh, a out-of-the-box, non-political figure like a Trump could actually make things different and, and the uh, argument of Jared on, Kushner on the Palestinian side or the Israeli in, side or just in general I think in general uh, it's not impossible to imagine yeah. somebody from the Palestinian world that you had Salam Fayyad who said we have to start behaving like a western state yeah. before we become a western state so he was driven out of Palestinian politics right. but if that becomes a movement and then yeah. you could have change. And I don't know that that's not going to happen over I, the next 50 years. I know it doesn't sound like a good argument, but I can't remember which article I read it in. But, you know, people were saying, well, Jared Kushner, he's an Orthodox Jew. He's not going to be able to do anything. But, the, you know, the other argument is, well, 80 years, nothing's happened with all these experts. Maybe it takes someone who right. doesn't think in the box. I don't know. I, I always find it fascinating that it seems Trump just shoots from the hip with everything. But with the Israeli-Arab conflict tone is kind of measured, comments seem to kind of fit with American policy, and he's not necessarily doing his out-of-the-box stuff. I think it's happening with a lot of things. I think you can Japan. see it starting to happen more China. with Russia. You saw it happen with China. China. It's, it's overall. China. China. Well, what you have is, is that as Tillerson and Mattis sit, get comfortable, and now as Flynn without, you're going to see that more and more and more, because reality dictates, reality comes around. But, but we are very knowledge. bad at predicting the future. If you had told me in 85 that the Soviet Union would fall within a decade, right. you'd say that was crazy. If you had said in 1940 <laughs> that Germany would be the most upstanding, productive country in, in a European Union, you would say that was crazy. And when Theodor Herzl said... If you said it, that in 1945, you'd be crazy. Right. And if you also would have been crazy at the end of the 19th century to say Germany would be responsible for the destruction of the third of the Jewish people. Yeah. 
Yeah, we are okay. we are incredibly you bad at predicting the future because we try and predict the future based on today, and the world does not work linearly. It does not work. Things happen. We know the future will be different. Our job is to push it into the form that we want it to be, because it could be in all sorts of different ways. And so we have to, as Jews, that's, that's the difference between the concept of status quo versus fixing the world. I think. I think so. But one thing we can do as Jews is we can articulate. We can have these com- conversations with people where we try to shed light and explain to them what's going on. That's what today's topic was about, how to talk about the two-state solution and its alternatives, though we didn't really talk about the alternatives so much. I guess that's my fault. I kind of brushed them away. Sorry about that. But, um, but we look forward to talking to you next time. As always, thank you for the positive feedback. Please send us suggestions. Uh, you can find how to contact us on our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.com. Org. You can find us on our Facebook group, uh, Teachers Lounge Podcast on Facebook, uh, or all sorts of other ways. And let us know what you think, and please give us suggestions of what you want us to talk about in the future. Any last words, Alan? Looking forward to seeing uh, what happens from this uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and President Trump meeting. I'm sure it will change quite a bit. Any last words, Benji? I just say that was a very authentic Teachers Lounge conversation right there. It was fantastic. There was, don't you think they always are, though? Don't you think, like, we're exactly. really just holding yes. up microphones and having the conversations exactly. we would... Exactly. It would have been the same conversation if you weren't holding the microphone. But I would probably we make fun of you more. Yeah, and we actually did have this conversation earlier today. <laughs> I think we started with... Who, you and I? Yeah, yeah but Benji... Down in the steps. Or yelling on the steps. That's true, so but it was a somewhat yeah. different framework, and yeah. Benji wasn't there. No, no, this is the kind of stuff... Yeah, I, I think this podcast is what it says it is. Uh, so... Fantastic. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's terrific. It's huge. So thank you very much. Looking forward to to your feedback. Bye-bye.